You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Hi, everyone. This episode was recorded on December 5th, 2020. Just a heads up, at the time of the recording, I, Julia Osterman, didn't work for Sylvia Terra, but have since joined the team. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Ida. I'm Julia. And I'm Kate. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of Solving Climate Naturally. We are three friends with backgrounds spanning conservation, international development, investing, and entrepreneurship. And we met in business school at Stanford and discovered a common interest in natural climate solutions. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Max Nova, the co-founder of Sylvia Terra, a company that uses remote sensing and artificial intelligence to survey forests at scale and empower landowners and conservationists to better manage and monitor their forests. Sylvia Terra is a really interesting example of how we can use technology to enable natural climate solutions and to accurately measure them and make decisions around them. Max, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to talk with you all. So, Max, we go way back to undergrad, and while I was busy singing a cappella in my spare time, you were busy laying the groundwork for what would become Sylvia Terra. So, tell us about you and the origin story behind the company. It's true. It's true. Um, yeah. So, you know, I was I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, went off to to Yale for undergrad, and when I when I showed up on campus, I was convinced I was going to be an interventional radiologist. That was uh, <laughs> that was pre med, along with basically everybody else. And uh, organic chemistry swiftly convinced me otherwise. And uh, so at the end of my freshman year, I was, I was sitting there trying to figure out, okay, well, I'm not going to be pre-med. And I had based my whole life on that. So, so what do I do next? And uh, there was a, a job open, uh, like a summer internship position at the School of Forestry. And, uh, you know, the, the School of Forestry kind of had a reputation around campus as, uh, you know, uh, a group of people that knew how to have a good time. And I said, you know, that's maybe not the worst the worst place to, to spend a summer. Uh, but what was also really attractive about it was that, you know, I, I was coming from sort of a computer science technical background and, and forests to me just represented one of the most complicated systems on the planet. Uh, but one where the level of technical sophistication generally tended to be pretty low. And so it, it felt like an area where I could have a real impact and really move the needle, even as like a pretty, pretty oblivious, you know, 18 or 19 year old kid. And so that's that's kind of what got me started down that path. And now here we are 10 years later, and uh, it's it's really evolved. But that same idea of, you know, sort of applying technical tools to solve these really uh, challenging problems in these complex real world systems. I mean, that's that's still what what I do all day, every day. How did you get to start the business? How did, how did you think of actually starting a, a company that would get involved with forestry? Sure. So uh, my my summer internship at the School of Forestry, you know, they hired me basically as a undergrad code monkey to work on some sort of unrelated projects. But in the the process of doing that, I met my co-founder Zach Parasa, who was a graduate student in the lab I was working at. And uh, you know, Zach's a really kind of unique guy. He uh, he, I, I I call him the the Da Vinci of the forest because he just combines so many different areas of, of expertise and, and insight that it, it really gives him kind of unique, a unique perspective on, on forests and how to build solutions to those. I mean, he, he comes from a place where 
he understands the forest ecology, the economics, the logistics, the statistics, the remote sensing, the policy side, you know, like all, all of these things that have to come together to develop a coherent solution uh, to managing forests. And um, yeah, and so Zach, for his, his master's thesis, had developed this remote sensing technology to use satellite imagery and aerial imagery and, and some other data to accurately predict the sizes and species of trees and forests. You know, that's a kind of a whole other other story. But he was just going to publish that as his master's thesis. And I had started my first company back in high school, you know, which didn't go anywhere, but I kind of had the, the bug. And uh, I said, you know, hold up, Zach. Like, sounds like people would probably pay money for that. And we started doing the math and looking at whether or not we could actually make a business out of it. And uh, we decided to have a go. Uh, and so we, we actually won Yale's uh, uh, sustainable business plan prize uh, that first year. It was 25000 bucks. Felt like more money than we could ever possibly spend. Uh, which was really exciting. And we, we basically got in Zach's truck and started driving south and, and doing real work with real clients. And that was that was kind of the origin. Wow. And here you are today actually running a forestry carbon business. So help us understand how your business works. What is Silviatera's business model? And what do you guys do in very simple terms? It's kind of evolved over the years from the initial vision. But I, I I'd preface it by saying the thing that Zach and I both agreed on right from the very beginning is that there's just this tremendous market failure in forests. It's one of the biggest market failures in, on the entire planet, which is the failure to appropriately measure and pay for all of the values provided by forests. Uh, so we all know that beyond timber, there are, are things that we care about in forests like wildlife habitat, fire risk reduction, and water quality and quantity. And yet we do an absolutely terrible job of of paying for any of those except for timber. And that's because timber is really easy. You, you cut down a tree, you ro literally roll it across a scale at a mill and you get paid by the ton. But all of these other things happen out in the woods where historically it's been really difficult to measure and pay for value. And we end up in this situation where our society is desperate to have more carbon in forest. It's desperate to have less wildfires going on in California. And yet we just really have no levers to pull to, to create the landscape that we want. And so that was that was the vision that Zach and I started with, yeah, you know, ten years ago, right? But the the that's an enormous, big, hairy problem to solve. And our thesis is that measurements make markets, and that if you don't get the measurements right, it's kind of all made up, and the points don't matter. And so that's that's where we started, and that was the core of Zach's you know original technology was doing these measurements really, really accurately. And so for the first five years of our business, we spent almost all of our time working with big industrial timberland owners, uh, working with big conservation groups, working with state and federal agencies to help them use our technology to do these really high-resolution forest maps that they would use to inform their management. Uh, and what's exciting about where we're at now is we're, we're moving beyond the data. You know, Zach and I didn't want to spend the rest of our lives counting trees, right? Because what, what's valuable here isn't the data, it's the underlying forest itself. And what's powerful is to be able to use that data to change how the forest is valued and managed. And so now with the willingness to pay for things like carbon and wildfire mitigation and all that, we're, we're in really a, a exciting moment where, um, you know, we, we have the data to make markets for these things actually work. So when it comes to actually changing the behaviors of actors in the system, who are your customers? Like, could you tell us a little bit about who's actually using your services and sort of how that's changing their behavior? There's kind of two sides of it because it is, it is a market. There are the people that buy and then there are the people that sell. And the people that buy are people like big corporates. 
So people like Microsoft that have made sustainability commitments where they say, we are going to be carbon neutral. And so when they make a commitment like that, step one is how do we reduce our emissions as much as possible? And so they, you know, there are smart things you can do to sort of bring your, your emissions down. But at a certain point, you know, there's, there's some certain unavoidable emissions that you make. And so with those, you need to offset those and by carbon offsets or carbon credits or, you know, the, the language around this seems like changes on a pretty regular basis. But the point is you're putting carbon up into the atmosphere and you'd like to pay somebody else to take it out. And so that's, that's one of the big things that's changed in this last year is uh, explosion of interest and, and demand from big corporates to buy carbon credits. Uh, and, you know, Microsoft was a real pioneer in that, you know, it seems like a couple of decades ago now, but it was, uh, it was really only January 2020 that Microsoft made their big announcement where they said they were going to be carbon neutral, uh, where they announced their billion dollar climate innovation fund. And since then, there's just been this parade of big corporate commitments falling behind them. Um, so that's, that's the buy side of the market. And now on the other side is the, uh, is the supply. And so those are the people that actually own the land and those are the landowners. And there's a lot of moving parts there. and would be happy to, to sort of dive into how that works. I think what you were describing is your new and CapEx marketplace, right? The yep, absolutely. offering that, that is essentially connecting and democratizing carbon offsets so that smaller landowners can participate did I get that right? Or how would you describe NCAPEX? Yeah. So the, the natural capital exchange is really the focus of the company now. You know, and, and you know, as I sort of briefly mentioned, we started with the data side. And the data is great, but it, it really is the forest that's valuable and change it, using that data to change how the forest is valued and managed. And so the entire thesis behind the natural capital exchange is how do we put carbon? How do we put biodiversity? How do we put wildfire mitigation all on the same economic footing as timber? And so the thing I find myself saying to the, uh, to our team internally all the time is, you know, really our mission is to work with every landowner and every acre for every value every year and help coordinate, you know, this, this massive amount of economic activity across the landscape so that our society gets the landscape that we want and that we get more of, uh, you know, more carbon, more biodiversity on the landscape, less things like wildfire and, um, yeah, that is that is one of the grand challenges I think of our generation is how do we how do we coordinate all of this and and get everybody pulling in the same direction to get the climate and environmental outcomes that we want. Yeah, it's really complicated, and there's so many different landowners across the U.S., which is, I understand, where you're starting out. So, can you explain who are these people that you're trying to enroll, and how are you reaching out to them and trying to engage them in NCAPEX? Sure. So our thesis is, you know, when you're trying to change what the landscape looks like, it's really important to work with the people that that own the land. But when you look across the landscape in the U.S., it's an enormous mosaic and, and patchwork of of ownership from, you know, the U.S. government owns a bunch of land, particularly west of Mississippi. There's big corporates. So people like Weyerhaeuser and Hancock and these big timber companies. Um, and then it turns out, though, actually, that in aggregate, small landowners in the U.S. own the vast majority of the acreage. And um, there's a lot of reasons why uh, all of those groups of people have have really not been able to participate from the small landowners to the really big ones. Uh, and we can get into that. But part of what's powerful about what we do is because we're measuring every acre every year, we can really make it so that every landowner and every acre can participate in in markets like this because we've got the measurements right and that's what drives the market. Walk us more through the mechanics of this marketplace. So I'm a small landowner. Maybe I have 
100 acres? How do I sign up? How do I get paid? When do I get paid? Just curious to walk through the journey of a small landowner from on that side of the market. We, we try to make it both uh, as simple as possible and as compatible as possible with people's existing sort of operational management planning cycles. And like I said, timber kind of drives the boat right now. And the way that it works for most landowners is every year they say, okay, well, what, what kind of timber do I have out in my woods? And do I cut it down this year or not? Or do I wait? Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's really kind of the big lever of, uh, of what drives what the, the forested landscape looks like are those, you know, year by year operational timber harvesting decisions. And this is, you know, generally kind of the same for big landowners and for small landowners. You know, people have different discount rates. They have slightly different preferences around, you know, well, the timber is valuable, but maybe I also really like the wildlife habitat that's out there or the scenic beauty, or I'm trying to manage for my deer herd. There's a lot of things that go into determining um, what people's management looks like. And all we do with NCAPX is we give people another option uh, for managing their land where we say, okay, well, you know, you, you type in your address, we sort of cookie cut your, uh, your property out of our, our nationwide forest data set. And we say, well, this is what's out there right now. And this is how much money you could be making for timber. Or if you're willing to defer your timber harvest for one year, uh, this is how much money you could make. And so, you know, we're not trying to sign people up for super long-term contracts or anything. We're just trying to change your behavior right now for money. And, you know, that's, that's uh, changing the incentives that drive the landowner economics. I mean, that's how we get to scale on things like this. And so the landowner can choose to take that offer or not. And if they choose to take that offer, then one year later, we remeasure their property with our, our remote sensing technology. And if they truly have deferred their timber harvest and there's still uh, that carbon on their property, then they get paid. And if, uh, if they don't deliver, then they don't get paid. And so what's, what's really pretty revolutionary about this is it's just a payment on delivery, one-year term system. You know, that's how a lot of other of these you know, commodity style markets work. And no one's ever been able to do that in the world of natural capital because no one's ever had the measurements. One important aspect of that is the additionality piece to it in, in terms of natural climate solutions, ensuring that the action would not have been undertaken otherwise. And so I'm curious, how predictable is the behavior of those small individual landowners? How do you know that they would have cut down that tree if not for NCAPX and that payment that you're providing? Absolutely. So that is a, a critically important question. And this is something that all forest carbon projects have to face. This is what we've been doing for the last 10 years is working with big landowners, helping them use our data to drive their timber schedules and you know optimize the net present value and all of these things. But the, the critical thing to understand is that you know any forester will tell you that every acre of forest is different. Every acre has a different stocking, has a different growth rate, has different operability constraints, has different you know, transport distances to mills, you know, is exposed to different markets and different timber prices, uh, different regulations, all of these things. They, they all really, really matter uh, in determining what your net present value curve on an individual acre looks like. Uh, and it's not rocket science, but it is very data intensive to model those things. And no one's ever had the kind of data that we have to drive those. And so we're actually able to do you know, pretty, pretty heavy-duty economic modeling for every single individual acre to say, well, you know, if this landowner is an economic actor, what, what would they be doing to optimize their timber revenue? And can you ever be perfect about that? Probably not. 
But I'll tell you, it sure is a heck of a lot better than the way existing forest carbon markets are set up. And so uh, we should go into that. But you know, the short version of this is that you can usually get a pretty good sense for what someone is likely to do if you have all the data to drive a, a reasonable economic model. So I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, get nerdy uh, and talk a little bit more about the technical side of the business. So one thing I thought was very sure. interesting was, you know, in addition to a chief technology officer, you also have a chief biometric officer and a team of biometricians. So for those of us not coming from forestry backgrounds, what is a biometrician and what function does that serve in the company? A biometrician is basically a data scientist that lives in the woods. Uh, and, you know, it's forestry is actually a fascinating field because a lot of early statistical techniques were developed by foresters. Um, you know, back in you know, Germany, uh, a couple hundred years ago, people faced the same problems. They said, well, how do I, how do I manage these forests for fuel wood? was one of the big things uh, that you know, people in well, yeah, really old time Germany cared about is you know, not freezing to death in the wintertime. And so it, you know, it really mattered to be able to manage your forest effectively. And uh, you can't manage what you don't measure. And so for, foresters were kind of early on the whole big data revolution uh, way, way back in the day. And uh, forest biometrics is the profession that grew up around that. And this, um, this really deep expertise around uh, statistical sampling of these complex natural systems, of uh, doing things like uh, predicting the amount of, you know, the number of two by fours in a particular tree. Um, you know, it, there's just a, a million data questions that have to be answered when you're trying to do scientific management of a forest. And that that is exactly what forest biometricians do. Awesome. And so what are the core technologies that underpin precision forestry and allow that, that big data analysis to happen? There's two key inputs to our process. One are the field measurements. And, you know, those are, you know, basically more or less the same type of measurements that foresters have been doing for hundreds of years, where you go out to the woods and you measure the, the, uh, the species of every tree. Uh, and then you also measure what's called the diameter at breast height, which is exactly what it sounds like. And from those two critical measurements, you can you can develop models of things like tree height, of the amount of carbon in a tree. Uh, you can also drive things like wildlife habitat models uh, and all that type of stuff. But really, the foundational data are those sizes and species of, of the individual trees. So that's one half of the input data. The other half is all the remote sensing stuff. And uh, so we, we basically pull a big stack of remotely sensed data from a bunch of different sensors from a bunch of different times. And uh, the, the thing that we have figured out how to do at Sylvia Terra that's very unique is how do we pair that remote sensing data with those field measurements and develop credible statistical models that can underpin real financial transactions. One, one of the things that you see a lot now is there's, you know, the space is getting pretty hot. And so there's a lot of, you know, machine learning people coming in and saying like, oh, yeah, we'll do forest things. And any, anybody can show up and show you numbers, right? Like anybody can build a model. The question is, you know, is that a statistically reliable model, one that you can use to actually underpin real, real world, you know, multi-million dollar transactions. And that is a pretty high, high hurdle to get over. And uh, that's, that's what we spent the last 10 years doing. Over 10 years, that's a, a long time in the world of data science and remote sensing. A lot has, has obviously happened in that time period. I'm, I'm really curious, I mean, because one of the critical aspects of your approach is that it requires as many landowners as possible to participate. What is it about the technology now that lowers costs in a way that 
permits this perhaps for the first time? Is it new technology? Is it new ways that you're using the technology? Is it the data itself, computing power, algorithms? What What is it that's happened in the, the time in which you've been working that's that's changed? You know, it's kind of all of the above. Certainly, there have been uh, more satellite platforms that go up and more imagery that's available. You know, and that, that's helpful, but that's not that just gives you a little bit better precision on your estimates. Um, the the modeling techniques, we've certainly innovated some stuff, but under the hood, you know, it's all just math. There's not, you know, there's there's no, you know, super mysteries of the universe ultimately under this. It's a lot of just pretty hard-nosed applied statistics. Uh, and then, you know, what's really changed and what's really been transformational is the availability of cloud computing. And so for us, you know, we we were very fortunate to get paired up with Microsoft and their AI for Earth team. And Lucas Joppa, who's the chief environmental officer over at Microsoft, immediately understood what we were trying to do. And, you know, up to that point, we had just been working with big landowners and kind of applying our technology on a project by project basis on, you know, a million or two acres at a time. But there's 600 million acres of forest in the U.S. And so we went to, to Lucas at Microsoft and we said, you know, hey, we would, we would love to create the first ever high resolution forest map of every acre of forest in the United States. And uh, all that's holding us back is compute. And uh, Microsoft said, well, we've got some compute. And so they basically gave us a bunch of credits for their Azure cloud computing service. And, uh, and yeah, through that, we were able to crank through tens of terabytes of, of satellite imagery and, and all this other data to develop what we call BaseMap, which is the first ever high-resolution forest inventory that has the sizes and species of trees on every acre of forest in the United States. How do you expect this to be used by folks? And is this something that's already available to foresters at large? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this, this is kind of a natural evolution of the data, almost like the data consulting service that we were running for big industrial landowners for the last 10 years. And so, you know, now anybody can go to our site, they can send us, you know, sort of the, the outline of their property and we can cookie cut uh, their property out of that base map and, and report, you know, well, what are the sizes and species of trees there? How much carbon is in? In there, are you a A, B, C, or D grade for uh, for deer habitat on your property? Uh, there, there's a million things that you can do, and that's the stuff that we're really excited to build. But you know, like I said earlier, the data is not really what's valuable here. What's valuable is being able to use that data to change how the forest is valued. And so, uh, what's what we're most excited about and what we're spending you know, all of our time working on these days is how do we use that data about the forest on every acre every year to drive markets uh, for carbon, for biodiversity, for wildfire risk reduction, uh, for all of these things that society really cares about and these corporates really care about and conservation groups really care about, and governments really care about, uh, and, and give people levers that they can pull to, to change landowners' incentives to get more of what we want on the landscape. The impact that you have on a forest, the decisions that you make in, in one year may impact sort of ecosystems for years to come. How does that sort of balance between the short term and the long term actually manifest? If, if people today are making a decision, you know, we value this, but later on they want to change that. The way that you're describing or that I'm hearing is really about sort of on an annualized basis, people can be changing what they value. And so how does that actually work when forestry and forest management is really the thinking about the long-term versus the short-term? Well, there, there's a kind of a tongue-in-cheek saying that, you know, forestry isn't rocket science. It's a lot harder. 
Uh, and, and it's because there's a lot of moving parts and you got to think about, you know, how these things play out over time. Uh, but this, this question of time is a really, really critical one. And it ties back to these issues of, of permanence and durability, uh, you know, and carbon accounting rules in particular. But one of the things that I think is really important to, to acknowledge is that there is no permanence. Permanence is an illusion. There's no scientific question about this when it comes to forest ecology. There is no steady state. The forest is constantly changing and, and our society is constantly changing. You know, the values that we have uh, as a society change and evolve over time as well. You know, I mean, our values here in 2020 are very different than the values in 1920. One of the challenges we're trying to solve is this question of every year, how do you send dollars to the acres on the landscape where you create the most impact for the least cost? Because in theory, that's what we should all want. The, um, you know, the, we, we can talk a little bit about long-term discount rates and, uh, and the economics of this, but you know, you'll, you'll hear people say that this is the decade of action. This is the critical decade. We need impact on the landscape right now. If that's the position that you take, it is insane. This is one of the things from first principles that gets me really riled up about the way a lot of forest carbon projects work right now, where people commit to keeping carbon on the landscape for 100 years or something. They get paid all the money up front, and the carbon doesn't stop getting delivered until your like, great-grandkids graduate from college. You know, If we're in a climate emergency, that is the silliest resource allocation I've ever seen. What we should be doing is spending present-day dollars to create present day impact and then doing that year over year over year over year because the science is going to get better. We're going to have a better idea of what we want as a society. The technology is going to get better. Uh, you know, all, all of these things really change over time. And uh, these, yeah, there's no, no other area of the economy where people sign hundred year contracts because it's insane. It's, you know, predicting the future is almost impossible. You know, long-term ec economic forecasting isn't a thing. And so our view is like, well, but we know what direction we want to move this year. So let's, let's move the needle this year. And then let's, let's figure out what the right thing to do next year is. And then the year after that, and then the year after that. So part of where your team has articulated this thinking before is in the RISE framework that Sylvia Terra has developed. And the RISE framework is this really interesting concept that your team has worked on. It's sort of are the principles on which NCAPX is based on. Could you walk us through the RISE framework? I'll say that the RISE framework was informed by work we had done actually in traditional forest carbon projects. Because uh, that, that context is kind of important. So about five years ago, you know, Sylvia Terra had, you know, was five years into its history at that point. Uh, and we said, man, you know, people are doing a lot of forest carbon projects. And that's great. This is totally in line with our vision of you know, what the future of forestry is going to look like, where we balance all of these values across the landscape. And so we started working with a lot of the big forest carbon project developers and being kind of the intel inside to use our data to drive a lot of this sort of forest carbon accounting and the analytics and all that. And you know, we'd worked with many of the big landowners in the US uh, before, the people that are actually signing up for these forest carbon projects. And what we saw happening is we would see them sign up for a forest carbon project, and it wouldn't change their timber harvest schedule. You know, the you know because we had been helping them develop their timber harvest schedules for years at that point. You know, in terms of where they go out and cut and plant and fertilize all these things. And so, if you sign up for a carbon project and it doesn't change your timber harvesting behavior, it's kind of like, well, guys, what did we do here? And so, actually, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people getting paid a lot of money 
and creating very little climate impact. And so actually two years ago, we kind of had enough. And we said, you know, we've seen how the sausage gets made on these forest carbon projects and, and we don't like it. It's not good. It's not creating real change on the landscape. and We don't want to be part of that. And, uh, and we said, well, surely we can do better with data. You know, if we're measuring every acre every year, how can we create real change on the landscape? Uh, and so that, that's the R in the RISE framework. Uh, so RISE stands for real, immediate, scalable, and efficient. And, and we kind of said, you know, as, as citizens of planet Earth here, like if, if you were just going to start from scratch and say, you know, we want to create, uh, you know, we want to really put a dent in, in the climate here and, and make progress towards the solution, what would you want? And so step one is you want to create real change. You don't want to pay people to do what they were going to do in the first place. The I stands for immediate. That means you spend dollars today to create impact today. You don't spend dollars today to buy carbon 70, 80, 90 years in the future. That's that's insane. That's not the right emergency response. The S stands for scalable. How can we be working with every landowner on every acre every year by dramatically lowering the, the enrollment costs, the measurement monitoring costs, the participation costs, all, all that type of stuff? And then the E stands for efficient. Uh, and, and it's at the end for a reason. Uh, you know, it's like you, you kind of have to get all these other things right first before you start thinking about the efficiency. But uh, efficiency really just comes down to what is the price per ton uh, for carbon that you're paying across the landscape. And ideally, you get that as low as possible so that you can have as great of an impact as possible. And so that's, that's the RISE framework. We built the Natural Capital Exchange from the ground up to, to align with those sort of first principles. One of the things that interests me, Max, that I'm hearing as we talk is that you really believe in this sort of uh, market-driven solution side of things. I'm curious how policy intersects with that. It's You're sort of leaving it up to consumers to decide what they think is best and what they want. In terms of externalities and sort of collective good, where does the role of policy come in? Mm, absolutely. Well, I mean, so th- this is ultimately a, a you know grand strategic question of civilizational resource allocation. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. At, at my core and what is true and what actually works is that decentralized data-driven market systems tend to do a pretty reasonable job of resource allocation uh, over time. Now, that's not always true if you have things like market failure, which is why we're very, very focused on solving this market failure and getting the price signals to the appropriate economic actors. And our, our view is, is that if we get those sort of primitive operations correct, then you know the the invisible hand will kind of do its thing, and uh, that turns out to be a pretty pretty reasonable way to coordinate mass scale activity in these complex real world systems. And uh, there's a, a great book actually by a Yale professor of agronomy, uh, James Scott, called "Seeing Like a State," that addresses you know exactly these issues of, of resource allocation by you know sort of centralized committees, uh, whether that was uh, you know Soviet agriculture or forced villagization in in Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, but it, he actually starts with the birth of scientific forestry in, in Sachs or, you know, in Germany somewhere in, you know, the 16 or 1700s or something and, and talking about some of the, the issues that they ran into trying to manage these really complex real world systems, uh, in a sort of centralized, really rigid way. And it, it's just tough to make that work. I mean, the real world is really, really hard. Uh, and nobody has all the information that they need. Yeah, our, our view is that we, we need to get the incentives right for the individual economic actors, and that'll result in getting us the landscape that, that our society wants.
Now, you had asked about the policy side, and what's really exciting, you know, given you know how a couple of weeks ago turned out now uh, in in November in the U.S. is that there probably is going to be a big a big policy push. You know, I think the the government has uh, a role to play in sort of setting the the rules of the game, in a sense, and sort of saying, well, what's what's good carbon and what's subprime carbon, you know, or at least sort of holding the ratings agencies accountable because that's a important thing as we all learned in 0708. And then, you know, the government is also a huge, they've got a huge procurement lever that they can pull. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the Biden climate transition team's memo to the USDA, one of the proposals that they have is for a carbon bank, uh, which basically uses the pre-existing authority of the, the commodity credit corporation, you know, to instead of subsidizing corn and pork production or whatever it is, uh, uses the same thing to buy carbon. Uh, from landowners, and so one of the things that we're we're really hustling on right now at Sylvia Terra is, you know, how do we how do we get something like the natural capital exchange in front of uh, those those policymakers and say, well, listen, like this is this is a great, really efficient market based solution that you know allows the government to direct dollars to acres where they create more carbon on the landscape. I want to come back to the question of immediate impact. I'm curious how you think about investments in R&D and tree planting or other activities that you know, are generally agreed to be important, but don't have that same immediate impact as paying people to not cut down timber today. Just like there's a time value of money, there's a time value of carbon. You know, the World Resources Institute actually has a great paper about this. Uh, but this idea that you know, carbon today, carbon sequestered today because there's a climate crisis is a lot more valuable. Than carbon sequestered 50 years from now. And, uh, you know, Bill Nordhaus over at, at Yale, who won the, the Nobel for his work on climate economics, you know, he's done a ton of work on this social cost of carbon question and uh, thinking about carbon over time. And so the, the trouble with planting trees is, again, you spend all the money up front and you don't really get a whole lot of carbon until, you know, decade plus later. And to carry that cost for that amount of time and yeah, you know, to discount the carbon back to sort of net present value of that carbon, it turns out to be a lot more effective just to pay people not to cut down mature timber. Uh, and so not to say that it's not worth doing, but we should really kind of spend the money in the most efficient places we can first. I have a different but related question. So y- your team's obviously sort of among the forefront of sort of applying this like rigor of thinking around sort of the, the timeliness of attribution and and I guess I'm curious, do you think your approach or like the RISE framework could be applied to other domains of natural climate solutions? And understanding that perhaps Sylvia Terra won't, because as you mentioned, you're staying here on swim lane, but do, do you see potential for its application outside of forestry as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's an even better fit for something like agriculture, which just operates on this one-year tempo. A lot of farmers are leasing fields instead of owning fields. You know, they have no ability to sign up for 100-year contracts, but are they willing to change their practices today for money? Well, depends on the price. And so, you know, this what we call ton-year accounting, one ton of carbon sequestered for one year, you know, it applies very naturally in forest ecosystems. Uh, and is, is, you know, we kind of jokingly refer to it as a pay-as-you-grow system. Uh, but, you know, for any of these other natural systems where there is no permanence, where things are constantly changing, but you can make these changes on the margin. Uh, you know, of, of course, uh, the RISE framework can be applied there. And of course, that's actually what we should do if we were serious about this. You know, like all economics happens at the margin. 
And uh, we're just trying to get those marginal incentives right. And if you do that right, then that's how you create real, immediate, scalable, efficient impact on the landscape. I want to dig into how it works again in practice. So how do you actually build this two-sided market? How are you going to ensure that you have enough buyers and sellers and how much participation is necessary for this to work? And how is the price actually set in your marketplace? Setting prices, this isn't the Soviet Union. I mean, come on, this is a market. (laughs) Well, okay, so I'll I'll break it down first. So the building markets is very hard and building two-sided markets is, is especially hard. We are incredibly fortunate. Well, I mean, we're not fortunate. I mean, we've been doing the hard work for a decade now, working with many of America's biggest landowners. And so we already actually have one side of the market pretty well coordinated. And, you know, all, all of these big institutional timberland owners, you know, they're trying to make money. And so we just go to them and we say, hey, you know, you guys harvest 10 million tons of carbon a year. And uh, those are not all equally profitable tons. You know, that 10th million ton, you know, you're only making a couple pennies by the time you, you deliver stuff to the mill. And so tell you what, you know, if you want to, you can, you know, bid in those tons into our market and say, you know, okay, well, hey, if you pay me, you know, a dollar per ton per year uh, this year, I'll, I won't harvest those and I'll actually make more money. I'll make a better rate of return on those. Now, if you want me to defer 5 million tons of harvest, you know, that starts to really, you know, those are more profitable tons. I need the price to be $2 per ton per year to do that, you know, but they essentially give us their supply curve and they say, given the price of carbon, that affects how much harvest I'm willing to defer. Uh, And so those are people that we've worked with for the last 10 years. They totally get it. They're all going to actually make a lot more money because this is now more demand for their same limited supply of acres. And so landowners love this program because, you know, it's, they're excited when a new mill opens up in their neighborhood. Cause again, that means that's more people competing for their same limited supply of acres. And so the landowner side is, you know, this is by far the best program for forest carbon for landowners that exist because yeah, you just do it year over year and, and the price is pretty good. And now on the buy side, what happens is a corporate buyer, like say, you know, Microsoft or JetBlue or BP or, you know, any of your usual suspects, they basically say, you know, we, we are committed to, buy, you know, offsetting, let's call it a hundred thousand tons of, of carbon. And we're willing to pay up to, uh, you know, let's call it $20 a ton, say, and they can submit actually different bids if they want to ultimately, you know, and they say like, well, if the price of carbon is really low, maybe I'll buy a lot. If the price of carbon is really high, maybe I'll buy less. And so, you know, then at that point we have the supply curve, we have the demand curve, and then we clear it, you know, we cross supply with demand, do some economics 101. And, uh, you know, for the buyers, it's great. They might've bid in at $20 a ton and the price clears at $12 a ton and good news. You just saved eight bucks a ton, but you know, that's kind of how efficient markets should work. And, uh, and so we have these quarterly fulfillment events now where we, we match the supply with the demand. U- ultimately, I think this will evolve to behave a lot more like other commodities markets where you have a spot price and stuff, but we got to do a little bit of choreography to get this all off the ground. But uh, yeah, that, that is the high level version of how it all comes together. And just on the tech front, how, how is this marketplace coming together? I mean, when I hear, you know, contracts and auctions, I, I you know, have to ask if, if blockchain is a part of that, because that's the, the thing these days. But yeah, how is the market actually actually going to work? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, blockchain is a thing. You know, I mean, that that is 
that is not really the enabling technology. I mean, it's fine to use it, right? And like, it's it's useful for, you know, having a canonical record of of everything. But you know, the thing, the beautiful thing is, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here, right? People have been doing commodities markets for other commodities for a long time. Uh, what's really novel about what we're doing is because we have the measurements right, we can just now treat all of these other types of natural capital like these other commodities and, and use these other tools that have already been developed for these other markets. And so that, you know, that helps us sort of do this, do this right. There have been a lot of smart people that have spent a lot of time thinking about what are appropriate ways to structure these commodity style markets. And, you know, those markets work. The guys at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, you know, they coordinate America's $400 billion a year agricultural production and, and coordinate across, you know, hundreds of millions of acres, millions of farmers, and, and it works. We're just kind of <laughs> doing the same thing for natural capital. I love the idea of not reinventing the wheel. Yeah, we, we have enough problems as it is. You know, I don't need to like, yeah, reinvent, you know, the entire field of, of commodities markets. We just want to do what works and create real change on the landscape. Just in terms of the, the price, I mean, for those not following the prices of, of carbon and voluntary markets, what is it? How is it changing? What might we expect to see in the coming years as more corporates are you know, getting interested in this issue and, and willing to pay for carbon? Any predictions? The price of forest carbon right now is something like 8 to 12 bucks a ton. Uh, it tends to be in voluntary markets. That price isn't real. And it's not real because it's subprime carbon. And this gets back to what I was talking about before which is that a lot of people are getting paid to not cut down trees that were never at risk of being harvested in the first place. And so how much money do you have to pay somebody to make that promise? Well, like basically any number above zero will do just fine, right? Because it doesn't create real change. It doesn't actually you know, change a harvest decision to a not harvest decision. Uh, you know, This is that additionality question that we had talked about. It all comes down to this question of baselining, which is critical for determining the additionality you know, the reality of these uh, carbon payments. And the, the subtle thing here that I think a lot of people miss is that when somebody bu- buys forest carbon credits, you're not paying for this stock of carbon on that property. What you are paying for is the, the delta, the change between the stock that exists and the business as usual scenario. What would have been on that landscape in the absence of any carbon payments? Uh, and and where the the problem is is that like I had talked about earlier that baseline the business as usual scenario it's actually pretty complicated to figure that out and it's different for every acre you know every acre is unique every acre has its own economic context its own transport distance to mill its own operability constraints its own stocking you know like all, all of these things that really matter to determine business as usual and it's not impossible to know but it is pretty data intensive to know that. Well, the way the California rules are set up is instead of doing some sort of customized thing, they use a coarse regional baseline. And so any Douglas fir in the Pacific Northwest gets the same number, no matter whether it's you know right next to a mill or 250 miles away from the closest mill. And so unsurprisingly, that like you get a lot of adverse selection in that market. It would be like, you know, if you're in San Francisco and you go into a bank, they ask you for your credit score before giving you a loan because you have your own individual you know, credit risk profile. And that, that really matters for the economics of how this all works out. What they don't do is they don't say, oh, thanks for coming in. Oh, you live in San Francisco? Everyone in San Francisco gets the same loan terms. You know, that bank would go out of business immediately. And yet that is almost exactly how forest carbon accounting rules are set up right now. And so our view is that the, the power of technology 
enables us to do much better credit scores, uh, basically for every acre. And that can help have a functioning market just like it does for, you know, retail lending. And speaking of functioning markets, it seems like there might be certain baseline conditions for this sort of solution to, to be effective. And I'm thinking of things like strong governance, property rights, predictable legal timber, timber markets. And, you know, obviously your work is focused on the U.S. at the moment, but I'm curious how, how it might play out in places like Brazil or Indonesia that are also, you know, large forestry countries, but may not have the same, the, the markets may look different from, from the U.S. Um, so would in CapEx work there? How would things change? How do you, uh, yeah, how do you think about um, how this works in, in less developed markets? Absolutely. Well, you know, that, that's why we started in the US, right? We, you know, it's like, might, might as well make it easy for ourselves in the beginning here. It's hard enough as it is. But, you know, when, when I say every landowner, every acre, every value, every year, I, I really do mean every landowner and every acre. So ultimately, we will be expanding this uh, beyond the United States. But when, when you do that, you know, I, I'm a pragmatist. Right? Like this actually has to work. It has to fit into the local economic and, and cultural and legal context of the place in which it exists. Now, there are some like really clever things uh, that some people are doing backed up by remote sensing and, and some of these other things where like, well, you know, if you don't have secure land tenure, how can you even do something? Well, you know, one, one answer is like, well, one-year terms really help a lot because you don't have to worry about the whole government changing. 10 years from now, it's just like, well, did it work this year or not? So that, that's one innovation that we're kind of driving. So going back to sort of the, the business building journey that you had with Silvio Terra, could you talk a bit about how you financed Silvio Terra and grown the business? And we'd also be just really curious, would it be easier or harder to start this business today? <laughs> sure. So we, we mostly financed it through long, hard work over a very extended period of time. And we grew slowly. You know, I mean, we're 10 years in and we're a 12 person team. So we kind of grew organically over those years. We, we took a little bit of money from uh, some some guys that had a billion dollars in Timberland and kind of got the idea as like a, a pre-seed investment, uh, you know, right when I graduated in 2012. But uh, beyond that, we didn't take any external capital. We were just, uh, yeah, doing, doing it the old-fashioned way of actually doing work and making money. And that got us to where we are now, which is at uh, a really exciting unique time, I think, where there suddenly is this explosion in willingness to pay for these non-timber forest values. And so we actually just closed our seed round led by uh, Union Square Ventures and Version 1 Ventures, just really, really smart, sophisticated investors who see the opportunity that exists in climate and understand why markets are are a really effective way to, to solve that. And so now we're embarking on a, a really exciting new phase of the company where we we're going to grow a lot faster and um, and and have a much bigger scale impact. But it would have been a mistake for us to do that before because the you know the buyers weren't there. You know, and so we spent the last ten years getting the numbers right, and that is a very very difficult technical journey. And we've had to prove that out uh, to people, you know, big Timberland investors with millions of dollars on the line, writing on these numbers. And and so we've gotten it to work. And now what's really exciting is to use that data to drive these natural capital markets. And the time is now. So it's a, it's an exciting journey we're on. Well, big congratulations. I feel like that says so much about how far you guys have come and how far sort of forestry and international climate solutions at large has come as well. Yeah, well, thanks. You know, this was the dream from the beginning. Like I said, you know, Zach and I didn't want to spend our lives counting trees. 
But uh, society has kind of caught up to Zach's original vision on all of this. And it's exciting. And Zach saw this from the very beginning, like I said, because he's, he's the Da Vinci of the forest. You know, I mean, that's why I spent my life working on this. You know, it's like when I started, I was 19. And it was just such a compelling vision. And it just makes so much sense. You know, it's like you got to get the math right. And then you just put everything on the same economic footing as the timber and, and you get the landscape that you want. And there's a million moving parts to get right to do that. And we've earned it. You know, we've earned every single step of the way to get here. And, uh, and now we're kind of in the right place at the right time. It's, uh, it is 100% go time for us. But what's exciting is that, you know, we have an opportunity, I think, to really set what the narrative around natural climate solutions looks like. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's thrilling. It's, uh, it's a big responsibility. We're working really hard to get it right and lots more work to do. Well, we're right there with you, excited about this field. You know, one of the reasons we started this podcast was we're really interested and, and excited about the potential for natural climate solutions and data and technology to really make a dent in, in climate change. It's definitely an exciting time. And, and to that point, there is a far ways to go to realize this vision, right? To actually achieve that scale of impact that we need to make the biggest difference that we can against climate change. So we're curious, and this is something we'll probably ask each of our guests is, you know, if you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale NCS? What right now are the biggest barriers to realizing your vision? You know, I'll say that when I think about scaling this thing up, there's three things that have to come together. There is the supply, there is the demand, and then there is the, the sort of like, uh, you know, market and accounting mechanisms and, and all the mechanics around all that to make it work. And, and what's super exciting for us is, you know, we have the supply side. That's the world that we come from. Those are all the people that we've been working with for years and years. We have the mechanism. And so now it's really just a question of connecting with the, the demand side. And, you know, I should have probably mentioned this a little bit earlier in our conversation. We just wrapped up a big pilot project with Microsoft in Pennsylvania, where Microsoft put down real money to buy carbon from landowners in Pennsylvania by deferring their timber harvests for a year. And that was a, a really big success. And it sort of proved out the basic plumbing of, of the natural capital exchange system and was a big part of actually why we were able to raise uh, our round is because we had shown that we made this work with, with real landowners. Uh, and so the missing piece here is demand for these things, but it's not really that missing <laughs> anymore. 2020 has been a weird year for lots of reasons. But one of the exciting things is, you know, just this, this parade of these corporate carbon neutrality commitments. And if you add up just the voluntary commitments, it's like over a gigaton. You know, that actually exceeds the ability of American forests to provide that number of offsets. And so it's, um, you know, every, everything's kind of coming together. You know, if, uh, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd like to clone everybody on our team three or four times over because we just have an un unbelievable amount of work to do. But, uh, you know, the, the other thing that I haven't talked too much about is the, the regulatory side of this. You know, we, we raised our round on purely the voluntary carbon commitments. Obviously, the government could be a huge source of demand for carbon uh, with the carbon bank that I had, I had mentioned before. I'm, I'm a little concerned that, uh, you know, well-intentioned policymakers are, are going to sort of copy-paste what California did. Uh, with all of its structural issues with additionality and, you know, and leakage, because not all the landowners can participate in all these things. And, and I think that would be a national tragedy. I mean, it'd be a global tragedy for the climate, because what would happen as a result of that is that the government would spend a lot of dollars for some, you know, putative climate impact that wouldn't actually occur. You know, you would just be paying landowners to do what they were going to do in the first place. 
But I mean, you can pay landowners to change their behavior. It's just you got to get the rules right. We wanted to wrap up our podcast with getting a few more of your perspectives, but just in sort of nugget forms. We're going to do a really quick lightning round. All right. Uh, Lay it on me. All right. So what is your specific favorite carbon sink? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Kentucky boy. So, uh, carbon going into those white Oak trees that get turned into bourbon barrels is a pretty good way to consume (laughs) your carbon. I can see that. Um, what's your favorite book that you read this year? Uh, well, you know, that, that's tough for me. I I do a hundred books a year. So, uh, I, I, I've got four for you instead of one. I, uh, I did all the King's (laughs) men this year, which I, is just a beautifully done book, uh, East of Eden by Steinbeck. Also just incredible. Uh, you know, I I read that because I was at out in California. And uh, I did uh, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, which uh, I did sort of on a lark and I absolutely loved it. One of my few five-star books of the year. And then uh, I actually just wrapped up a a kind of a weird uh, literary French uh, novel by Welbeck called uh, The Map and the Territory, which uh, went in with very low expectations and it just blew me away. Wow. That is quite the list. Um, So besides reading, favorite COVID quarantine activity? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that was really weird uh, was raising around while COVID happened. So we we raised a pretty big round of money with never having met any of these guys in person, which was kind of like a surreal thing. You know, I was doing all these pitch meetings from like my brother's bedroom here in Austin, Texas, as I was like dog sitting for him. It's you know, something that could have only happened in 2020. Really weird, really weird year. The things that we never knew we could do on Zoom. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so on a darker note, what keeps you up at night? Well, you know, it's this policy thing. You know, I think there's a pretty, uh, you know, if we don't, you know, if, if uh, Zach and I sort of don't, don't speak up and raise our hand and, and get in the room on some of these policy decisions, uh, you know, in Biden's first hundred days, I think there's a very real possibility that the administration accidentally screws up the forest carbon accounting rules. Uh, you know, not through, through malice or yeah, anything. It's just, you know, it's complicated to get it right. You'll have a busy first half of 2021. So speaking of that, what are you most looking forward to in, in 2021? So we're starting with forests in the U.S. South for carbon, but I'm really excited to start developing wildlife metrics, you know, biodiversity metrics on top of that, uh, wildfire stuff out in California. There's a couple really big reinsurance companies that would be thrilled to not have to pay out $10 billion every other year in uh, you know, fire property damage that would love a lever to pull to reduce wildfire risk on the landscape. Um, yeah, and then just geographic expansion. You know, we'll, we'll roll this out across the rest of the U.S. Uh, you know, and then there's plenty of, other, plenty of other places, plenty of more acres of forest outside the U.S. Uh, and it's going to be really challenging, but also really exciting to, to work there as well. That'll be quite the list of things to do. That's very exciting. Well, Max, thank you so much for joining us today. We have so enjoyed having you and learning all of this about your work and your perspectives. How can listeners learn more about Sylvia Terra? Sure. So, I mean, we, we have a bunch of materials up on our website. You know, if you're having trouble falling asleep at night, we do have a 30-page white paper on forest carbon economics. We also have uh, some, some really nice uh, story map visualizations of, of how the natural capital exchange works across the landscape. Because it is, it is a little... Um, it's kind of a second and third order thing, sort of how these these price signals play out across the landscape. And so, you know, visualizations are a really powerful way to develop an intuition and an understanding for how that actually plays out and, and why it's a good idea. So that's uh, that's where I would start. Great. Terrific. Well, and we'll also be sharing those in our show notes. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. 
check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.